Hello, and welcome to Book Reviews Kill, a podcast about fantasy, sci-fi, and horror novels. I'm Evan, and you're joining me today for a conversation with Nicholas Eames, author of Kings of the Wild and its sequel, Bloody Rose. Nicholas, thank you so much for being here with me today. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I always like to start with this question, as we are a podcast primarily centered on books. What are you reading right now, if anything? Oh, God, I'm always reading something. Um, I always also have an audiobook on the go as well. So right now, I actually just finished reading a phenomenal book, an early advanced copy of Dragonfired, which is uh, by Zachary Pike. Uh, he's the author of a series, I forget what the series is called, The Something Price. But the first book is Orphanomics, a self-published masterpiece. It's so good. One of the first books I recommend to anyone that likes my stuff because it's it's really funny. It's got like a very, very party-based adventure, uh, and yet it gets shockingly poignant at the end. It has a lot to say about society. It's, uh, I know a lot of anyone who writes anything funny gets compared to Terry Pratchett, but I think it's the closest to Terry Pratchett we've got that's not Terry Pratchett. Is this like economics fantasy? <laughs> it is. It is because it's very much kind of about like that first book. It's like it's a parody of almost like the housing uh, crash of 2008. And just the whole way the world's set up. It kind of like very similar to mine in that it's an idea that seems like a joke, but works in the context of the fantasy world. Um, and his really does. It's uh, groups of adventurers get contracts to do things. And then the loot is like uh, pre-assessed by like banks and then divided up afterwards and everyone gets their share and stuff like that. And the second book, uh, Son of a Lich, is even better. Uh, it's hilarious. And uh, and then so the, he asked me if I wanted to read an early copy of Dragonfire, the third and final book. And I was like, buddy, there's no book I'd rather read more. And then, yeah, I haven't quite decided what to read next. I've got a couple early books from from people that would like me to blurb them. And I would really love to do that, even though it's been almost a year since I read something purely of my own choice. But the first one I picked up is this one here. It's called The Last Hour Between Worlds. I guess you can't see it. This is not a visual medium. Um, but it's by Melissa Caruso. It's a new series of hers, her third trilogy. And uh, she was in Orbit, a debut author the same year I was. Uh, and we're pretty good friends. So I'd love to support her. So I'm checking it out. And so far, so great. Do you feel like you rarely get a chance to sit down with something that just kind of came to you naturally? or um, I do kind of make have to make time for it. There was obviously a period where I was, you know, you try to please people, especially when you're new to the industry. Mm-hmm. Then maybe you get burnt out on it. And there's so many books that I want to read that you know aren't necessarily whether they're in the genre or whether they're modern i have a whole like a slew of model michael moorcock books i want to get through and i do once in a while thankfully they're pretty short but yeah i, I about a year ago or a little over a year ago i took like a, a long time and just read books i wanted to read and it was pretty nice and pretty rewarding and then eventually i was just like ah, oh, you know it is a privilege ultimately to get to read new books and and debut books before they're out so yeah i do try to mix it up and, and keep a healthy balance between them yeah, we'll see how it goes. I'm also audiobook wise, I'm listening to a really good book from Orbit called uh, The Combat Codes. Hey, that's Alexander Darwin. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I've heard very good things about that. Let's hear your thoughts. Uh, well, so far, it's, I'm, I think I feel like I'm about halfway through it and it's awesome. It's such a good idea. It's yeah. like MMA, you know, fantasy battles settled by MMA fights. Um, and it's uh, he is a jujitsu you know practicer himself, and it's really cool to read books when the person writing them like obviously has some experience in that. Um, so yeah, I'm loving it so far. And is a huge fan of uh, of anime. It's a very anime type idea, you know, the idea of cool fighters from all over the world competing stuff. Like whenever someone new is introduced, you're like, oh yes, this is badass. Oh, that's like right out of the anime playbook. Yes, exactly. Speaking of books that you've been reading or have read, were there any books or authors in particular that inspired the world of the band, the way you wanted this world to feel? Uh, definitely. Uh, I would say the two main ones were Joe Bacrandi, which I'm sure is true for a lot of authors of my age, you know, but only because before him, there was, I didn't, I hadn't read many funny books. I hadn't read Terry Pratchett ever. And, uh, and honestly, fantasy books just don't really try to be funny that often. It's hard to do. Yeah, at least they didn't back in 2008 when he first came out. So yeah, reading him, I just loved it. And I thought it was really like hilarious. Like, and when I described his writing to people, he's not, not always trying to be funny, but he ends up, he, there is like a sardonic humor in almost every single sentence. Yeah. It's just infused into his writing, uh, which I really love. And then uh, Scott Lynch's The Lies of Locke Lamora, which is one of my favorite books ever, yep. um, my favorite titles ever, yep. my favorite writers ever. And uh, <laughs> when I read that book, one of the, one of the few books in my life that I was like riveted by nothing else in, in, in the whole world 
would make me stop reading that book. Like I was just like compelled to keep reading it. It used to be if I had to stake my life on one book that people would like no matter what and everything hung in the balance, that would be the book I would recommend to them. Yeah, I, I think I've recommended that more than any other book on my many platforms. Um, maybe uh, Assassin's Apprentice by Robin Hobb, yeah. I think. Yeah. And your book, honestly, I've recommended oh, great. in a while. Well, that was the like point, a, yeah. A bunch, yeah, like a whole lot. Um, because, I mean, you know, you do have like that kind of Abercrombie Lynch flair to it, but I feel like there's also a certain levity to stuff you know i mean like with uh scott lynch like yeah it's funny but also like you know there's like this plague that happened and like there's a lot of death and like it's pretty brutal sometimes and then I, mm -hmm. abercrombie is like you know abercrombie's humor i feel like comes from a place of like almost like nihilism um and it's totally just, yeah. it's very dark and like especially because like I, i've finished nine abercrombie books now yeah pretty much at the end of every story, whether it's the trilogy or the standalones, it's just like, yeah, and some people are dead and some <laughs> aren't. And, uh, yeah. you know, just yeah. wheel keeps on spinning, assholes. Totally. Like, sorry, you know? Totally. Um, but with Kings of the Wild, like, I mean, I, I still feel like, especially with uh, Bloody Rose, I feel like there was, um, I felt like the characters were more unsafe because of kind of like a couple mm -hmm. of the things that they were pitted against. So there's that with the characters and uh, you do a really great job of like tying in so much um, of their personality with some of these like scary things that are going on but i also don't feel like it's going to ruin my life after i'm finished reading the book too. yeah perfect perfect the great well, mix. the whole point of kings of the wild um i mean I, I definitely hadn't read a book before that was trying to be as funny as i was trying to be in that book so i that was one of the things that i didn't know if it would uh hinder it getting published and it really almost got published without the humor um if a couple you know different publishers had had their way so thankfully, you know, it found exactly the right agent, exactly the right editor um, and got through the way it is. But yeah, it kind of tries to be funny and it tries to be like, there's there's so many books out there that are, especially at the time when I wrote it and was writing it rather, that were grimdark, you know, mm -hmm. it was, grimdark was reigning supreme in the, you know, early 20 teens. And sometimes I get condemned. I see a review or something that says, you know, there's no people don't have any consequences to their actions. And I'm like, you know what book does is every other one. <laughs> go read them to, a, to an extent yeah. that you will be really sad while you're yeah. reading it. Go read all of them. Uh, this one doesn't really. And and granted, that does, that obviously changes in Bloody Rose. But uh, but yeah, I, I really wanted there to just to be the reader to have a sense of like fun during it. That, you know, yeah, you, there's stakes and yeah, you're, you feel for the characters and you don't want them to be hurt, but, uh, but that hurt doesn't necessarily have to be death. You know, I've thought about that a lot and talked about it with my co-host quite a bit on this podcast. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, this idea that I've noticed it in, in a lot of media too, like whether it's books or movies or television or whatever, or video games, especially the stakes are usually not living anymore, being dead. Mm -hmm. And it's like, mm -hmm. that's fine. It's a totally scary thing, of course, but also we can I, I love it when books dig a little deeper and it's like okay well well what what could this person lose that would be worse than death or like what could happen to this situation that would make it so bad that somebody yeah. would like want to die or something you know something like that like what yeah. relationships could be ruined here totally you you had mentioned before your publisher or um potential publishers i should mm -hmm. say you know people that have been looking at the book and forming their own ideas about what the final product should be before you had a final product what were some of the things that they wanted it to be? Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, because there was a, I mean, I got extremely, extremely, extremely fortunate in that the the only two offers we got on the book, at least, you know, I took the second one, came in pretty much at the same time. The other publisher kind of wanted it. They wanted all the music references gone, most of the humor gone, um, and Moog pretty much excised from the book, who is, for those who haven't read it, like the funniest character um and basically like any i think he even said in their letter basically wanted it to be more like joe abercrombie and to feel like joe abercrombie fans um but it ultimately you know it would have been joe abercrombie light because it's not obviously as heavy as joe abercrombie and uh you know i don't think i'm as especially was as talented as joe abercrombie at that time either and it's just i don't know like i'm so glad luckily another offer came in and the people were like we want it just as it is but fifty thousand words bigger is what orbit said 50,000 so, words. 50,000 words bigger because it was 100,000 words. Um, I had cut it down from 120 for my agent. Um, and then Orbit was like, there was about 10,000 worth of words. There was some some like scenes that were told in flashbacks as opposed to just, you know, met, talked about. And they wanted those gone. So that was about 10,000, but they wanted 
50,000 added, just some more world building and stuff like that. And the changes that that made to the book were beyond belief. There, there literally was no bad guy. The bad guy was just the, a generic, like a giant horde, faceless horde. And so when it came to adding 50,000 words, I was like, well, I can put a bad guy in and put scenes with him throughout the entire book. And bam, there's your 50,000 words. So, and now I just can't imagine it without him. And his story is ultimately impetus to the, to the next few books as well. Was that daunting for you at first when they told you they wanted 50,000 or were you like excited to add more to it? Uh, I was really excited because I, I'd been an aspiring author for a long, long, long time. So at that time, I mean, nowadays, knowing what I know and, you know, writing as slow as I do, that would seem like a daunting task because uh, I didn't have very many months to add those words. Um, but at the time, I was just so high on life. I was like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm going to get this book published. So yeah. whatever you need me to do. So I at the time, I was I mean, even when I turned that edit in, I spent the entire night at a Tim Hortons, which my Canadian friends will know well, really the last few nights, pretty much up all night drinking coffee and uh, and writing those scenes. And I turned it in at about five in the morning. Uh, the Friday before I was supposed to get That's it in. So cool. I love that. Um, You're yeah. man after my own heart, Nicholas. <laughs> yeah, it was like a fever dream. I'm not sure I'm capable of that anymore, but uh, but yeah, I got, got it done. So I just finished Bloody Rose a couple days ago. I read it in one day. Wow. I mean, it just rolls right along. And I, I am now in the unenviable position, along with thousands of other people, of waiting for book three. The name of book three is Outlaw Emp The Outlaw Empire or Outlaw Empire? It's Outlaw Empire, yeah. Outlaw Empire. Yeah. Um, so I read somewhere that Kings of the Wild represents more of the like 60s and 70s. Like you've got like, you know, you led Zeppelins, The Who, like kind of that golden push of rock music. And then Bloody Rose is more like a like a punk rock, like 1980s, mm -hmm. like Sex Pistols, Dead Kennedys type thing. So are, with the Outlaw Empire, are you going to try to go through into the grunge movement or some hip hop or maybe uh like the the boy band era <laughs> yeah well i mean the short answer to that is hell yes uh the longer answer is that yeah like kings of the wild is very much inspired by music that i had, didn't really listen to a lot shockingly before i wrote it which was like led zeppelin deep purple black sabbath all that kind of stuff and even the world the setting is inspired by those times like granted you're at the you're at the kind of the end of it in kings of the wild because the world's kind of moving on into an 80s type atmosphere but ultimately, with the entire trilogy, besides the fact that, you know, they're all standalone books, you're getting different characters, but you do get characters reappear. Um, so besides the fact that you'll see characters' lives change and unfold and be altered by the what happens in the books, ultimately, I also want to show a world evolving from what it is and what it was in the, in the glory days, so to speak, of Kings of the Wild to what it becomes in the future. As our own world did, you know, from the between the 70s and the 90s, a lot of pretty wild changes. So... So yeah, the, the first book is kind of like a happy-go-lucky, the music, the bands at the time, you know, they didn't know what they didn't know. They were just getting big for the first time ever, like filling these stadiums. Um, and then with Bloody Rose moves into a, a time when, as the great poet Meatloaf once said, everything louder than everything else. Um, and bands were trying to emulate what came before, but going harder and, and crazier and like doing crazy shit for the sake of doing crazy shit, not just because it came to them naturally. So Bloody Rose is a... I know it's got a bit, it's a bit more, the bands are a bit more ego driven, a bit more self-destructive. And then with the third book, um, it is inspired by a lot of 90s music, but a lot of the core of 90s music, whether it's grunge or hip hop, is kind of anti-establishment. And people are like, I'm not going to do what you're telling me to do. Um, it was a very rebellious music. Um, when you look at like things like Nirvana or Rage Against the Machine um, or NWA, like, right. you know, so much of it was like, you know, literally, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Um, so that's kind of the spirit of the third book. Freaking love that. And what you know what's really cool too is that with the first book, Kings of the Wild, you know, you are kind of like in a way hearkening back to a certain golden age. Like I'm sure they did in the late seventies into the eighties, mm -hmm. when they were like, Oh, you know, all these bands, they're just playing as fast and loud as they possibly can. This <laughs> doesn't make any sense. This is reckless. You know, it's not like it was back in the you know, the late sixties when the equipment to play all this stuff was so shitty nobody could even hear each other you know we won't talk about that yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it was a golden age damn it yeah uh, but uh, that is one of the things that i noticed about bloody rose that i really enjoyed was your kind of commitment to the characters having a certain self-awareness of the changes going on outside of their own dynamic in the band too i noticed a certain will they or won't they kind of conform to these changes that are happening regardless of their attitude toward it 
mm-hmm. which I, it's just such an awesome thing to center or uh, surround, I should say, the party dynamic with. This series is not just about these bands of monster hunters. You know, you've got a whole world unfolding and, and learning from the past, you know, like these yeah, monsters. Yeah. It's a big question, you know, like, and I think that that question has been raised so much with, um, you know, like Tolkien style or uh, like Terry Brooks or like these kind of old like running and camping, like old guard fantasy series where yeah. we do have like these kind of legions of monsters that are just kind of fucking everything up. And it's like, well, wait, what, what's going on with yeah, them? Yeah, why? What do they yeah. want? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, I think it is. It, obviously, it poses a lot of interesting questions and, and moving into the 90s, um, which I think has been a challenge getting this third book rolling is the fact that it is... Um, a darker subject material when you when you're if you if you're only taking from the history itself and the music itself um so i think an important thing for me is is using the music obviously as an inspiration but using the world that i've already created and and like letting that inform the story a lot more and and, and trying to make it you know still moments of lightness and levity and fun and mm-hmm. you know the same kind of attitude but but you know the world is going through some pretty wild changes so I mean, a lot of people ask me if I ever want to like a D&D setting in this world. And I'm like, well, you'd have to choose the book because it's different in every book, you know, whether it's bands traveling around, whether there's arenas and the, you know, people or monsters are coming to you or, you know, the third books are vastly different from both the other two. So, yeah, I noticed that too. I mean, you, I'm, I don't know if you meant to do this or not, um, but I thought it was pretty subtle if you did like the idea that. You know there was this kind of golden age in the first book and there was like a way of doing things and now that some time has passed and so and it's like a saturated market almost and the landscape around that market has changed so much the core kind of experience of selling that if you will product has kind of been cheapened a little bit mm-hmm. you know it's like it's not the same as it was before yeah uh, and i feel like you can point to like quite a few in industries and you know quite a few not even just with entertainment but like food and, and like so much stuff 100 100 it's like okay you're hunting animals for food but then now you're producing animals for food you know and keeping those animals you know as livestock and things like that so right. yeah. you're right that's a really good parallel yeah it's interesting yeah there's, yeah there's a lot to unpack in these books too and um you know like i just uh, i think that that's what one of the main reasons that i love it so much is because you know you did kind of take this well what if monster hunters were bands you know and it's like yeah that's a really fucking cool idea but like it's not like this slapstick whatever who cares like everybody's fine and now they kill all the monsters and then the book ends it's like mm-hmm. no let's let's dig a little yeah i mean i think i tried to write a funnier book than it ended up being but i'm a sentimental person just at heart anyway and obviously i mean we talked before my favorite writer's guy gabriel k yeah um and so i can't help but slip some poignancy or try to slip some poignancy in there as well I mean, Guy Gabriel K. He is one of the greats. He is the best. If there's if there's any beautiful, especially beautiful paragraphs in my work, it's solely because of him. So, um, I know that this wasn't one of my questions, but I really wanted to ask you, and we don't have to t- go for a long time about it because I'm sure you talked about it so much. But I, I was curious about when you first started. I've listened to a couple different interviews with you before, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know if my fans have. But you really are a man after my own heart. We uh, we both have worked in restaurants, um, both writing, and um, I'm curious about like what that experience was like for you writing this book, working like you were, and meeting Sebastian de Castell. What was that process like? That must have been dreamlike, surreal. Yeah, it was really it was really cool. I mean, I, I yeah, like I worked in restaurants for years and years and years, and. At the time, when I, right before I got published, and while I was writing Kings of the Wild, I worked in a restaurant called Fable, which I named the band in book two after, which just worked out. And yeah, one night I saw, I was, I think I was probably up flirting with the hostess and saw De Castell on the reservation list. Um, I had just read The Trader's Blade, which I really, really liked. And yeah, I was like, put this guy in my section. So sure enough, he was there. Um, it was his wife's birthday. And I was like, hey, I'm an author too. And and he was super gracious about it. I think I was the first person to ever recognize him in public. So uh, he, he was pretty wild about that. He's a so, recognizable dude. I mean, like he's... Relatively, yeah. Because he's got like long hair and yeah. he's very roguish looking. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, he was super nice. And then we talked about, like I mentioned, I think at the time... I was still writing Kings of the Wild. There was an agent who had read my previous unpublishable book and said, I don't like this enough to publish it, but um, send me whatever you do next. And it was a pretty big agent. So he was like, okay, this guy might not be that terrible. Um, And then I saw Sebastian a few months later at the Writers' Festival in Vancouver. And he remembered me when I have to say hi to him. And he remembered who I was. He's like, how's your book coming along? I'm like, oh, it's finished. I started sending it out. I sent out to this agent. 
and they are reading it. They didn't say yes. They didn't say no. And they're, they're, they want me to work on it with them. So he was like, great. Um, and then the next time he came into Fable was shortly after that agent had, after months of going back and forth, eventually said no. And so he was like, well, you know, I've, I've got an agent who has refused a couple of my friends, but it's worth a shot. Um, why don't you send it to her? So I sent it to her and she took me on. So we ended up being buddies. And, and he, in the meantime, he had actually met me for coffee once. And I wanted to just kind of pick his brain about the industry and stuff like that. Not to say like, oh, you know, read my book. And when I met him, he was once again, super gracious. And he gave me a hardcover of Trader's Blade that you couldn't get in Canada at the time. And it said uh, at the beginning, uh, consider this a down payment for a copy of your first novel. Uh, and so a few years later, when they did a special edition hardcover of Kings of the Wild, I got to sign that and be like, now we're even or something like that and give oh, it back to him. So, so cool. it was definitely a dream come true. And and speaking of, apologize for this side story, but uh, Guy Gabriel K, as I mentioned, is my favorite writer of all time. And my first con I ever went to was in Toronto. And I had a reading uh, in the room right after him. Um, and I had met him at, like, we did a radio interview the day the day earlier. And um, I had met him, like, in a, I got my, got my book autographed by him. But anyways, he did this reading and I was obviously there. And then mine was right afterwards. And he said, oh, just to let you know, there's a new author reading up next. Um, his book's done really well. Um, if you'd stick around, I'm going to. And he ended up sitting in the third row right on the aisle as I did my first ever public reading. Uh, and it was surreal beyond belief. Like that doesn't even begin to, it's someone who, he is the reason. Like there's a very specific page of a very specific book that made me think, okay, I need to write. And to have that person sitting in the third row watching you read for the first time is just ridiculous. That's really amazing, man. That's yeah. So cool. That's so inspiring yeah. to hear. <laughs> I was very Damn. lucky. Yeah. Yeah. I, that sounds like one of those stories you don't really get sick of telling because it's so cool. <laughs> no, it was amazing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My next question actually comes from one of my Discord mods who was so excited to hear about this interview. Uh, his name is Kyle, and he asks, what is one band slash music reference in either of your books that people tend to overlook or miss? God, there are so many. So, I mean, I probably couldn't even name them all now because they're just riddled in there. And I'll often see a band, a, you know, a person's name, whether it's their last name or a band's name, and be like, just jot it down at the end of the document uh, to try to make sure I add it in. Um not so much a music reference, but there's a movie reference. There's a lot of movie references in both books, but there's a movie reference in Bloody Rose that is the deepest of deep cuts, I think. And sometimes people got it. And I am always just blown away by like, A, because you know they obviously read very closely and paid attention. Uh, and it's a Say Anything reference. Um, oh, I've which never is a, seen that. So I It's don't a think great I've Cameron Crowe movie, but uh, there's a part in it where John Cusack um, gets broken up with and during it, she she's just, the woman's super awkward and she gives him this pen. And then he's in a phone booth in the trench coat in the rain talking to his sister. And I says, I gave her my heart and she gave me a pen. Uh, so there's a scene in Bloody Rose where there's a breakup type scene and the woman gives her a knife. And she's <laughs> like, I gave her my heart and she gave me a knife. And so whenever yeah. someone uh, gets that, I'm, I feel extremely gratified. Okay, so I don't even know if this is real, but uh, I noticed that in Bloody Rose, there was a fortress called Lamneth. There is a song by Rush from Rush's uh, third album, Caress of Steel, called The Fountain of Lamneth. But mm -hmm. I don't, I, I, I wondered if you took it from that, but. I absolutely did. Oh, yeah. you, you're so fucking cool, dude. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a, there's a ton oh, of Rush boy. references in there, like yeah. whether it's a chapter called Fly by Night or yeah, an axe named Syrinx. For sure. Um, and so, yeah, Fountain of Lamneth is Canadian. in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Got to represent. I have a, a Rush tattoo on my leg. Oh, wow. Uh, it is uh, YYZ or Z in uh, Morse code. And I don't know if you know the story behind that. No. Um, so the reason, and this is a this is an, a nod to how much of a genius is the, the absolute genius that is that band. Um, but they were flying into the Toronto airport and um, the cabin door, I guess, was like open when they were taxiing. And the airport code for Toronto is YYZ, mm -hmm. uh, just like LAX or whatever. And Neil Pert overheard the Morse code tapping out for the airport code. So it was did and he was like, that's a pretty awesome rhythm. And then they made YYZ out of that. Wow. Oh my God. And it's just like the reason I got it tattooed, obviously, I mean, Rush is my favorite band. Just the idea that you can pick art out of any situation almost like this idea that 
You know, you don't have to sit over your desk and just be like, come on, where's the idea? Like, let's go. You know, it's like, no, I mean, if you're out and about and you kind of just look around and check stuff out. And Rush is such a good inspiration because they are a band that infuses fantasy into their into their music. So the nerds. Yeah, I actually there's a in in the Kings of the Wild when all the bands there's a lot of bands mentioned. There's one I think it might just be straight up called the Wheat Kings, which is a tragically hip reference. Another big Canadian band. After Kings of the Wild was published, while I was writing Bloody Rose, um, I was still working in restaurants for quite some time. Right up until pretty much I turned Bloody Rose in, or shortly after. Actually, maybe for a year after, come to think of it. But anyways, I was in this restaurant, and uh, and one of the guys from Tragically Hip came in. And I wanted to tell him so bad that I wrote a book and that I put a reference to them in it, but I, yeah. I never did. Yeah, because you'd have to be like, well, you have you have to read the book and like, you know, yeah, and yeah. You, did, you probably didn't carry a copy of Kings of the Wild with you while no, you were working. No, shockingly, or, yeah, yeah <laughs> it was frowned upon. <laughs> like, please read my book. Yeah. yeah, what was that like? I mean, you know, working in a restaurant and um, was that kind of like a a weird like reality check for you or like, you know, you I mean you published a book, it's doing pretty well. You're working mm -hmm. in a restaurant, like. Was that like? No, I think it's, I mean, I think it's something that a lot of aspiring authors should be aware of that. Like it's not very often, not a life changing amount of money um, that you first get as, and it depends. Like obviously some, some people come out of the gate and get massive six figure deals and sometimes they get six figure deal in the U S and then in the UK and then somewhere else too. But I got a pretty modest five figure deal that would not like get me through a year, let alone yeah. multiple years. And so, yeah, it was like, and you only get a third of that money up front, really. Like, I mean, obviously, I still haven't had the end of it because I haven't turned the third book in. So you just get, you know, I was a little bit richer than I'd ever been before, but I certainly wasn't rich by any means. So um, I might have taken, I moved back to where my family lived. And uh, and yeah, I worked in restaurants for, um, I mean, even, yeah, I feel like right, right shortly after Bloody Rose came out is when I could finally stop working in restaurants. And, right. and even that, I was extremely lucky for that to have happened. And it might not last forever. You never know. So you never know. I know that that phrase "Don't quit your day job" has always sounded so patronizing to me, but it's also like such good advice. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh like, yeah. So good. And by then, I mean Kings of the Wild. Yeah, it was doing pretty good. It you know had won a lot of awards by then, and you know, but I was an award-winning author who was also like you know a garbage bag had burst and spilled garbage onto my legs, and I was getting written up for not putting writing allergies right on a on an order so you know life goes on my personal favorite member of saga is moog i have a feeling a lot of people that's he's their favorite character um but my favorite from fable is easily brune i loved brune do you have a favorite character from saga and a favorite character from fable yeah i mean it's a complicated question because ultimately my favorite characters from each book are the narrators just because you're they're in your head they are both very much aspects of me um in that they are you know rather relatively um sappy <laughs> they can be sappy um, a lot of the time um so i love them both dearly however there is obviously a person in each band uh that is like the the funny one the one who any joke i can possibly think of i can just have it come out of their mouth and hopefully it'll get through the editors and into the book and obviously that's moog in the first book he's just so funny so happy-go-lucky so optimistic um and then in the second book is roderick um is kind of loosely based, very loosely based on Rod Stewart and the fact that he wears a lot of blouses and <laughs> has kind of a wild mane of yellow hair and yeah. uh, and he's a party animal. And he's the, he, he was kind of my comedic relief. My favorite like funny line in all the books is uh, is said by Roderick uh, in the second book. Um, and once again, between in case you don't want to spoil it for people between you and me, it's when uh, Tam pushes Hawkshaw off the airship when they're, when they're when Fable's fighting the, the dragon eater. Out. Yeah. And then he pushes uh, Doshi <laughs> off. And he's like, I thought we were pushing people off. <laughs> um, I just, I got, I love that line. It was such a good visual, like his legs sticking up out of the snow. And yeah. Stuff. Like, I love that. That was so cool. Yeah. And then uh, in the third book, I have the, a, a similar kind of character. Um, one who is actually introduced very briefly in, in like passing mention in Kings of the Wild um, when they go to a certain kobold's house to get Gabe's money from him. Um, and one of those chittens, as the kobold calls his kids, is a, is a, is a main character in Outlaw Empire. And he's kind of my, uh, my like mouthpiece, like any joke I want to get through, it'll be short knife is his name, his, uh, his duty to say short knife. Yeah. In Kings of the Wild, there's a scene where they go to this, the kobold's place and he's like, all the, all the kids have these little nests and one of them has a nest made of weapons. And he's like, oh, that's short knife. He's a little off. 
Um, and so, yeah, short knife is a member of the band in the third book. So, Hell yeah. Yeah. That's so awesome. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad I get to hear a little bit about the third book. Yeah. Um, I'm excited about it. Speaking of the third book, uh, do you know, uh, you know, your, your covers for your books are amazing. They're some of my favorite book covers. Uh, first of all, how excited were you when you first saw the cover for Kings of the Wild? Oh, I was extremely excited. I, uh, I'm a person that judges books by their covers quite harshly um, and and by their titles too. And one thing you, you know, aspiring authors may not know is that if you do the traditional publishing route, you don't get to pick your cover artist, nor do you get to pick the title of your book. Um, maybe if you somehow stuck to your guns, Such you a could. Good title. But, but I stuck to my, my book was actually called The Band. Um, oh. And I stuck to my guns pretty hard because they suggested a hundred other titles that I didn't like. And I was like, no, no, please just call it the band. And I think, and at one point I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to have a title that I don't really like. I might have a cover I don't like. And I just hope that people still like what's on the inside. Cause that's the only part that's me. And then my editor, whose name was Lindsay Hall at the time. And she, I think she, you know, knew that I wasn't going to win the title battle. So she went kind of looked, dig in, dig into my Instagram. And the night before I got the call that I got, an offer from Orbit. I had posted two book covers um, by that both had the same cover artist by a guy named Richard Anderson. Um, and so I think she looked at that and said, okay, well, I'll go behind his back and get Richard Anderson to do his covers. So as soon as she said, he's going to do your covers, I hadn't even seen them yet. And I was like, okay, we can call the book whatever the hell you want. Oh, whoa. That's so these cool. covers are going to be amazing. Uh, and sure enough, they are. Uh, I think they capture the spirit of the book, which is, I mean, especially the first, well, the, the, I think the second one's a better coverage because it's brighter and the character's a bit more unique looking. But the first one, I wanted it to capture, like there's, you know, shots of like Led Zeppelin standing in front of their plane or right, or ACDC yeah. doing whatever. And they all just look unbothered to just standing around looking cool in black and white. And so I think that cover kind of captures that. And uh, and then luckily they came up with Kings of the Wild, which I was pretty psyched about too. <laughs> Yeah, I think the, the cover for Kings of the Wild definitely, there is that kind of like nonchalant um, kind of air about all of them. It, it kind of does remind me of that classic like Zeppelin in front of the plane mm. picture. But also it's like, there is kind of like a mystery because you're right, it's not like as clear as um, the cover for Bloody Rose. Like with Bloody Rose, it's like each, like, you know, you can see every single character's like features. Yes, yeah. In it. Um, but yeah, so with the new cover for Outlaw Empire, like, are you, are you going with the same artist, I imagine? Yeah, the same artist. Uh, thankfully, I mean, he's really, really, really busy now. I don't think he does very many book covers, and he mostly does concept art. There's a movie called The Creator coming up that he did a lot of the concept art for that he's super proud of. So um, I feel lucky they actually got the cover for the third book done right when I came up with the idea, right oh, after Bloody cool. Rose was published. So it's been done forever, and I'm just not allowed to share it. Um, but it is a work of art. I mean, now I'm definitely stuck to using those characters that are on the cover, um, but they're great <laughs> yeah. characters. And it's a just like, it's, I think it's the best cover yet. It's so cool. Um, uh, I'm so yeah. Cover for the creator right now. It looks really cool. Damn. Yeah. That looks really, really wow. good. That's, yeah. I can tell, I can see the, uh, the similarities. Uh, this is a really important question, but yeah. um, do you think that the, the, what color do you think the spine of the third book is going to be? Cause we have red, we have blue, yeah, I mean, that is a really important question. I feel bad for the, any UK listeners because in the UK, they're not colored spines. They're just white or blue, so um, like the color of the, of the book. I know. Um, I think it's going to be gold. Really? Yeah. I'm not positive, yeah, but yeah. I would guess gold just because, you know, the cover is sort of a greenish gold. They could go with green. Um, in my mind, it's green. Yeah. They could go with green, but I mean, I've got some, I feel like I've got Orbit books behind me. Like, see, these three books yeah. are Orbit by Anna Smith Spark, and it's red, blue, gold is how they yeah, went. Uh, like, Hanius is red, blue, gold Yeah. as well. Um, yeah. I think there's like, oh, uh, we've got the Abercrombie over here, red, blue, and gold. Yeah. The Age of Madness. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, and then, so, um, oh, fuck. Uh, Sarah J. Moss's uh, Crescent City is red, blue, and then the new one just got announced, and it's gold. Whoa, this yeah. is blowing my mind. I mean, they do. There is. There has been. I've seen green because I, I mean, I've wondered about that exact question as well. I think maybe. I feel like you know the Greenbow Saga don't have that kind of thing, but there, I've definitely seen green before. Um, yeah. But I, I would bet gold, and, and I and I think gold would be pretty cool for it. Just yeah, I think that would look good. I mean, like uh, purple would be kind of red because it would combine red. Purple and would be red. Blue. Uh, and you don't see a lot of purple fantasy covers. Yeah, and as I mentioned, the covers got a lot of yellowish 
colors in it. So, and you know, purple obviously goes well with the color very, gold. Very, so, very yellow. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, like I, yeah, it'll be up to the geniuses at Orbit to decide. They have some pretty awesome covers. I, yeah, they do have great covers. Good hands with them. Do you keep to a writing schedule, or do you have a specific routine you found works for you when you're when you're drafting? Is there a separate routine for when you're revising and editing? I'll speak from memory because it's been a while since I had a great writing routine on the go. My writing routine, I feel like it kind of just got blown apart after kind of bloody rose. And, you know, obviously Kobe didn't help either and just the general state of the world. But I used to write when I wrote like Kings of the Wild in my, in my previous book, and I wrote Kings of the Wild pretty quickly. I would get up, I would go to a coffee shop and read for about half an hour and then start writing. And then hopefully get on a bit of a roll there and then go home and, and write some more. And I am an extremely, extremely slow writer. I used to try and hit 500 words a day, and sometimes I could hit it, sometimes I couldn't. Um, sometimes, I mean, I've got a, this British friend, R.J. Barker, who writes phenomenal books. And every morning I wake up and on on what used to be called Twitter, he's like, oh, I whipped out 2,500 words this morning, and I've just gotten up, but he's in England, obviously. And I'm like, oh, F you, R.J. <laughs> um, my like longest, and I know like a lot of people, some people can write like 10,000 words in a day. But once when I was revising or doing the edits for Kings of the Wild, I wrote for about 17 hours straight and wrote, I think, about 1,700 words. And that was like the max I will ever reach. Um, so I write pretty slow. And then with Bloody Rose, it was my first time under a deadline, which I blew a couple times. But uh, I was just so, I was very, very, very stressed out while writing it. Um, like beyond belief, it was kind of like, you know, all my dreams had come true. And, and the first book was doing really well. But for whatever reason, my uh, like mental fortitude absolutely crumbled while writing that book. So when I was done, I think I like started writing the third book in the same headspace. And like say I used to like I used to think, okay, how many? When's my deadline? How many words I got to do a day? And then if I wouldn't do that many words, I would at night I would lie awake thinking, you know, I have to do this many words tomorrow. And eventually, I just kind of like snapped and thought, you know what? My happiness is so much more important than anything else in the whole world. So yeah. now I kind of, I mean, I do try almost every day, especially every weekday to write. Usually it involves kind of get up in the morning. I do this, try to do the same thing. I read for a little bit and get to work and write. Um, my music changes on depending on the book. Obviously with Kings of the Wild, I could throw on, you know, Pink Floyd and they would go on for half an hour without any lyrics. And it was great. <laughs> uh, writing Bloody Rose is a bit different because 80s music is like, you know, it just wants to be listened to. It's like, listen how heartbroken I am. Um, so I would listen to a lot of synth wave for that one. And then with um, with Kings of the Wild, sorry, with Outlaw Empire, like I'd listen to a lot of like a lo-fi music. Yeah. Um, which kind of has like a hip hop beat to it, or you can find tons of just like hip hop instrumentals and stuff like that to write to. But uh, yeah, I usually just kind of like write as much as I can. If things are going great, I keep going. If things aren't, I call it quits and go for a run or something like that. But I would really, I do keep continuously trying new routines and yeah. new ways of doing it. Like listening lately, it's been working pretty well, actually, just listening to like white noise. Because um, I live right across from a school and my desk is right beside the window. And so there's just screaming children. It sounds like the Titanic full of children is sinking all day outside my <laughs> window. So now it's just blaring white noise and it's been going pretty well. So we were talking about Sebastian de Castell earlier and um, I read in an AMA he did on Reddit. Um, somebody asked him for some writing advice and he said that he has a lot of days, more days than not, where he's struggling. Um, and what he does is he tells himself, just write one sentence. Like just that's it. And then you can just, and then it's, you're done. Like you're not even like, maybe yeah. you should do more, maybe you should do whatever, but you're just finished for the day after one sentence. And sometimes he really does just write one sentence, but like most of the time it's a little bit more. Yeah. You know? I think that's great advice. And like, I mean, I, I like constantly try to, uh, like, I mean, I am a, a voracious listener and reader of author interviews. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and I love to hear them. And someone who has definitely inspired me is um, Christian Cameron. Uh, he writes fantasy under Miles Cameron. Oh, and yeah. And he writes, yeah, his, yeah. he writes historical Trader, fiction Trader and sci-fi. Yeah. yeah I didn't know his Sun. name was Christian Cameron. I was like, who the hell is that? Yeah, because he writes a lot of, he used to write like a lot of historical um, historical fiction. And then, yeah, I wrote, my, wrote his Miles Cameron. And then I think he's got sci-fi books and I can't remember whether he writes them under, I think he writes them under Miles Cameron. Um, but anyways, um, I met him at the same con that I first met Guy Gabriel K. And he was the most incredible, one of the most incredible people I've ever met. He is so like um, flight and chivalrous and calm and patient and wise. And 
he, he but yet he's so excited about everything he does and he has made writing a career and has made it a career for a long time and unlike so many writers that i know myself included he never gets angsty he never gets anxious he never gets worried he just is just or at least he's sure as hell never lets it show. Um, and he has compartmentalized his life into like writing is just work. And then he's got so many hobbies outside of that. And he's not one of those people that can kind of let their life pass them by as they pursue their dream or, um, or their craft. Um, he's just like, he is an incredible uh, source of inspiration for me. And he goes to the same coffee shop almost every morning and gets a full plate of croissants um, and a coffee <laughs> and a little espresso <laughs> Uh, the espresso thing was actually eye-opening for me because I used to drink large black coffees and then have to pee all afternoon. And oh. he just drinks and it interrupts the writing flow, right? He just drinks an espresso. He's good to go. Good he's idea. writing. So there's some life-changing writing advice there. Drink espresso, everybody. Yeah. Drink espresso and read Miles Cameron. Have you felt like pressure from like the internet or like any anything like that to like get this book out? Uh, I think a little bit, but not. Not a lot, to be honest. I've been extremely oh, yeah. fortunate in that. I mean, I I feel I do feel personally, uh, I would say I almost say I feel a tremendous amount of guilt, which I kind of do, but also not ever since I just had that snap and thought happiness over anything else. Yeah. Um, but I do feel I do feel you know that I want to get it out there, and I feel I feel bad for my editors because I you know they're they've been extremely patient, and I used to like almost a couple times a year, every few months, write this apologetic email to them. And they would always say the exact perfect thing in reply. That's like their therapists. I tell you, yeah. like the exact perfect thing in reply. They're very understanding. And, uh, and so my editors have been incredible about it because sometimes, I mean, I think it's happened with authors too, as certain, certain books have been rushed out and have suffered because of that. Hmm. Um, yeah. Obviously, yeah. it happens with in other forms of media more often than not, but I definitely can think of a few books that have suffered because of that. So uh, I think ultimately they do, you know, they sometimes they get painted as these inhumane, you know, publishing machines, but they are people and they do want what's the best, what's best for you, you know, especially once you've established a good relationship with them. So my editor, Bradley, is phenomenal. Um, and then readers, too, have been pretty great. Like, uh, thankfully, it helps that they're all standalone books. Uh, the, the band often gets called a duology, which kind of like makes me a little bit happy. I'm like, okay, hey, that's totally. a little bit of relief there. Super is. You know, it's not, but uh, <laughs> but it's a bit of relief. And some people, when they hear there's a third book, they're surprised, um, which is great. Um, but even, yeah, like it can, it can, I mean, it's not nearly as bad for me as it is for someone like Patrick Rothfuss, who like, you could be like, my mother's sick in the hospital. And people are like, where's the third book? <laughs> um uh, yeah um, I'm but, laughing and, but it's but it's intense yeah yeah and and I used to remember like I was a, you know like I said a voracious reader a fan my whole life and and one of my favorite authors who almost all universally take a long time between books like Guy Gabriel K is probably the quickest at two to three years um, but I've had authors that I love that start put, putting out books once a year and I am done pretty much at that point because those books are there was a noticeable drop in quality when they started pumping out books a lot faster. Some authors can do it, but, um, and I used to be like, yeah, like I just didn't get it. Why it took them so long. And now being in that position, I know that it's not, you know, sometimes you just, you just can't get it, get the words out. And sometimes you can, but I don't ultimately, I feel like internal pressure, but, uh, if someone ever asked for the third book, usually if I do respond, it's just like, I just explained to them, Hey, I've had a rough time writing this one, getting this one going. I'm super optimistic about it, blah, blah. And they're always very gracious. They're always very like, oh, you do it on your own time, man. As long as you're, I feel like open and honest with people, they're all, they're all pretty, pretty great about it. Well, that's good to hear because yeah, I mean, you don't deserve to feel guilty about that or anything. I mean, you are creating art and art isn't something it's not, you're not stamping stuff out, you know? I mean, like this is like, it. there's so yeah. much that's connected artistically to the rest of the things that are going on with you as they should be. You know, so it's like you get the whole person with the art, you know? Yeah. And obviously, like I, you know, I am counting on this as a career at the moment, and I would love to keep making it a career. And that obviously would require writing faster or being more successful. Um, but the whole reason I got into writing that guy, Gabriel K line about, you know, that I read way back in the day affected me so much. And I thought if I can ever affect someone the same way this affected me then that is what i want to do and that's why i want to do it and so i'm not you know yes the money is important the career is important but ultimately putting out a finished product that i am insanely proud of is the most important thing to me and i think that's kind of what uh you know the authors that i love who are taking a long time with their next book is just 
they're in their heads about it and they're, they want to leave something really good that they feel good about. Uh, so yeah, that's how it is yeah. with me for sure. Well, I mean, if you just drop something because you feel like people want it, like then yeah. everybody's upset. Then no one likes the product. Exactly. The, person, the person that did it isn't happy about it. How likely would Patrick Gravis be to write a fourth book if everyone hated the third one? Which Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of, kind of I think everyone's going to hate it anyway. Because They're going to try. They're going to try. Have you heard of uh, the, uh, what's it called? Half-Life 3 Syndrome? No. Like, you know the game Half-Life? Yeah. So, you know, the, the joke, like Half-Life 3 is basically never coming out. Right? Yeah. I mean, like it, it's probably not coming out. But if it does, it's never going to meet the kind of like dreamed up expectations of its fan base after mm -hmm. this long, you know, it's the same thing with um, like Winds of Winter and Dream, Dream of Spring, book yeah. six and seven and Song of Ice and Fire. It's like now, and even George R. R. Martin has talked about it at length and been like, well, what the hell am I supposed to do? Everyone's already figured everything out. So like, like, <laughs> like yeah. you know, like we've got forum posts that are like a thousand threads long yeah. of people that are basically writing the books for me. So now it's like I either do that and everybody already knows everything or I have to like think up all this. It's like extra work. Totally. Me. I 100% see how that can take the wind out of an artist's sales Oof. that with that, you know, and yeah. I'm, and I think maybe people, especially with something like Patrick Rothfuss, because people love to trash talk him now, people who consider themselves fans of him. Um, you know, I think when that third book comes out, they're going to read it and oh, yeah. They're going to remember why they liked him in the first yeah, place. It's going to be so sick. Oh, that, that third book. I So I've kind of like kicked around uh, Name of the Wind and Wise Man's Fear because I feel, I feel like it's constantly punching up because it's like they're so amazing. Like I've got them in hardcover, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're, they really are like two very, very good books, but there's some stuff yeah. to pick pick fun at and stuff. And like, you know, he does like have sex with like this like, uh, you know, fairy princess in like a timeless sex realm for like thousands of years or whatever. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. it's like, man, that's pretty weird, Pat. But like, yeah. uh, but yeah, you know, but like as much as much as I can kind of like send it up, I know that third book is gonna kick ass. Like, it's obviously gonna be good. Like, if, yeah. if the first two were any, and like the there's no question that the man knows exactly how to write a good fantasy book. Yeah, um, and if you kind of forget how good he is, like. Go to like look at Goodreads. Like Goodreads is um quote section, like from quotes of the books. And obviously, like I, I used to go there, go there for Guy Gabriel K quotes all the time. But there are, you know, hundreds and hundreds of quotes from The Name of the Wind that are just yeah. stunning. Music, uh, mu music is a cruel, harsh temptress. Oh, there's so there's one about, about his feelings about falling in love with Denna, and it's talking about walking out on ice that's like cracking underneath you. And like I'll Oof. never forget that, you know. And yeah. If I read a book and don't, you know, turn over a page, I'm one of those one of those heathens. Uh, turn over a page because of beautiful writing, or or stick something in it so I remember it. Um, I there's very little chance I'll read more books in that series just because I I'm I'm here for the prose at least myself. So yeah, you want I love, to I love Pat Rothfuss. Yeah. When you are having a difficult time with a scene or with like a specific part in a book or a part of the process, what do you find works for you? Like when you're having difficulty, I mean, do you kind of like push through? Do you change up what you're doing? Do you stand up? Do you go on a run? Like, do you, you know, try and just kind of shake things up or do you just like nose to the, to the grindstone, so to speak? Well, what I've kind of learned is how to me a few times, um, especially while writing Bloody Rose, because I was trying to write it so fast, um, was that if something's really not working and you're like just like struggling through a scene for me at least the answer was usually like a chapter ago and i was like okay i've got these people into totally the wrong situation yeah. i have to go back a chapter or so and excise like just change what's happening because it's almost like subliminally my mind and once again this is only for me but my mind was like you're these this is wrong this is wrong stop it stop going forward um go back so there's definitely there's some some parts in Bloody Rose where I'd written probably two chapters and of stuff that was happening and then I was just like, what where is the problem I? here? And I went back yeah. into where I was really happy with it and then chopped everything and then kept going. Dude, that's awesome advice. I'd never really thought about that before. Well, I hope it, like, if it works for someone, then great. I mean, it's like so obvious to think think about it, right? It's like go back and like check it check out what you were doing before. But I feel like sometimes when you're especially if you're drafting, you're like let's go like let's move forward let's get everybody yeah. in different spots but like and it yeah. can even be as, as as drastic as and i've done this did this in bloody rose and did this in book three as well was switching the narrator like the main character um i got halfway through bloody rose before 
I switched uh, the main character, Tom, to a girl named Tam. And, you know, it was not as simple as just going back and changing the he's to she's. It was a drastic change as to how that person interacted with the world. Um, and so it required, you know, I kept every scene, but I rewrote every scene. Um, and the same thing with getting Outlaw Empire started, uh, for years, I had this main character who was the main character and I just like, couldn't get it to work. And then finally I was like, okay, what if it was a different person that's also on the cover? Um, and, and, uh, and so far so good there. So are you committed to having one point of view character for each book? For these books, yeah. When I very first started this one, I switched it between these two characters. I was I was trying to write like a chapter from one, then a chapter from the other. I thought it could be pretty kind of dynamic that way. Um, but immediately my, my editors were like, could we just stick to the one narrator? And, and ultimately that is a good idea just to keep the, you know, the what people expect from the first two books. Sure. Yeah. You know, I can try it in some other book down the road. Um but very much so the, with the new main character that I've got in the third book, the main character, like all my characters like um, play in Kings of the Wild and Tam in Bloody Rose have been adjacent to the quote unquote hero of the book. You know, the first book is about Gabe going to rescue his daughter, but it's told with Clay right beside him. And the second book, obviously, it's called Bloody Rose, but Tam's right there. And so when I started writing the third book, this main character was my narrator. And, uh, and now it's the person right next to him. So um, hopefully that kind of works out too. And it, it just fits everything a bit better. With regard to not only the two books that you've already published, but this third one that you're working on, uh, mm -hmm. are you an outliner? Do you outline this whole story? Or are you going from the seat of your pants when you're doing this? Uh, I am going by the seat of my pants for sure. Especially with Kings of the Wild. Like I, you know, I obviously right at the be beginning, you know where it's going to end. They say my daughter is trapped by a horde. We have to go there. So surprise, surprise, that's where they end up. Um, and so, especially with a book like that, I feel you want to make it, you know, if they're going from A to B, you want to make them go through the entire alphabet beforehand. Like you got to make it as crazy as possible the way there. So I would constantly, like if one or two chapters would go by and I would think to myself, okay, what, what's the obvious thing to happen next? I can't do that. I have to do something totally different. Um, which is why it helped me a ton to have airships in my book because they are, you know, they are a phenomenal <laughs> deus ex machina, which uh, hey, is not there. always a bad thing, I think, um, because you can be like, oh, we have an airship. They're not going to have to slog across the heart wild. Oh, it crashed. I guess we are. Um, and so you can kind of mix things up that way with airships. You can skip over the traveling, the journeying through the forest scene that so many books have and just get to the good stuff. So um, I do like to, I mean, obviously with Buddy Rose, I had kind of an outline that I told Orbit that I was going to follow and I didn't follow it whatsoever. <laughs> um, I remember when I was halfway through the book, there's a big, a big climactic battle scene. I thought I was so close to the end when I was writing that. And then it turns out that's about halfway through and there's lots more to come. Yeah. I thought it was interesting that we were, were like that big climactic scene that you're talking about. I was like, mm -hmm. Whoa, what the hell? What this is, what is this doing here? Like, yeah. this, this is like two, 300 pages in something like that. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of like mix it up and keep it as, as uh, surprising to me while writing is it hopefully will be to the reader because you know if you just know if you can guess where it's going to be seven chapters from now no thanks like why even bother yeah especially you know? for the, so, the you know a lot, i feel like a lot of kind of like these books one of the cool things about them is how chaotic they can get you know so it makes sense that you would be kind of like what is it gardening yeah gardening uh yeah i always they, thought the architect gardener yeah, I think the panther thing is a better like gardening is weird because it's like, well, no, you're still planning on like where stuff. Yes. Not, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like like architect. Yeah, sure. Like, yes, that's a very. Yeah. But like gardening is like, I mean, you put your potatoes over here and you put. Your, yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, and I do have an end in mind. I had the end of Bloody Rose in mind from like a, a few chapters in the Kings of the Wild. I had in mind right from the very beginning. Obviously, I used to walk to work every day listening to um freebird guitar solo over and over and over again literally imagining that ending writing it um that's so cool and with bloody rose i was actually really close to the end and mentioned something about meatloaf on twitter and somebody was like oh i love this song uh and the song is called for crying out loud or crying out loud and that song had kind of gone underneath my radar but i listened to it and then suddenly i was like oh this is the climax of bloody rose oh, and i so must cool. have listened to cly i could fit it in about eight times on the walk to work and eight times on the way home and i would just and that scene you could probably read it exactly to uh 
the middle of for crying out loud by meatloaf um so much so that i put the words like something like her heart was crying out loud and my editors were like do you want to rephrase this and i'm like no it's a reference gotta keep it so we talked about writing a pretty decent amount and some little bits of advice but do you have any you know capital a advice for aspiring authors is there anything with regard to the writing process or this whole publishing process that that you had to learn the hard way well I'm extremely fortunate in that I didn't have to learn anything the hard way because I got so lucky with how how well my book was received. Um, but I think I didn't I kind of didn't know so much about the industry right before my book came out. There was an author that I loved, a book that I loved, and I went to look for the second book and found out it just wasn't happening because it hadn't sold. It had sold 800 copies. And I was like, this book is on bookshelves. I bought it off a bookshelf. How can it sold, sell 800 copies? Like, all you hear about is like books that sell tens of thousands or, or even millions of copies. Um, and you don't, I didn't realize that a book on bookshelf could sell 800 copies. And so that was kind of eye opening for me. And even in the industry, like a lot of people, you may or may not, people may or may not have heard it, but it's like, they say 95% of published authors don't write for a living. And you can kind of like, gloss over that when you're an aspiring author and think, oh, that's not going to be me, but it's so true. Like I can go to the bookstore and, oh, there's my friend so-and-so, they work at a restaurant. There's my friend so-and-so, they work in the produce section at this grocery store. Yeah. Like, you know, I, now I know the jobs, the actual jobs of all these authors that I love um, and it ain't writing. Um, and so it is, I think, important. And obviously no one wants to hear like, you know, that bad side of it, but you just got to know that it's not, it's not a financial like golden egg kind of thing. And, and you shouldn't necessarily put, I definitely put, way too many eggs in that basket. Obviously I loved working in restaurants and I would love to go back to them someday. So I'm not, not too worried about it. But one of my really good friends used to, he was an aspiring writer as well. And he still is. And hopefully he'll be right beside me on the bookshelf one day. And he, I remember he put off a lot of like promotions and things like that as he was trying to write. And then once my book came out and he was like, Oh, you're still working in restaurants. You're still taking it at the garbage. You're still doing this. He's like, I better take some goddamn promotions here. Um, so I would say just don't let your real life pass you by as you're trying to chase that dream and like make sure it's as full as it could possibly be. You pursue other careers and stuff like that. And and but because because when it comes to writing as a job, you're going to need to love it because it's, yeah. you know, um, but at the same time to keep it, you know, not as dark. It is like the most rewarding thing in the world. And at the same time, when you get fan mail from someone and you realize you changed someone's life or got someone back into reading or helped someone through a difficult time, it is the most rewarding thing to ever happen. So there are tons of bright sides to it as well. And you don't have to be super successful to affect someone like that. What would you like as a reader and a writer to see more of in the fantasy genre? Well, this is just my own very personal taste, but I love books that are like, I'm a huge history buff. Um, I love like the Roman empire and the Carthaginians, stuff like that. And so I would love to see books with more like really huge battles. I feel like so many books have battles in the end and it's like yeah. 50 guys or <laughs> like they're showing up with an army. There's 400 of them. And I'm like, what? It's a fantasy book. Like even yeah. in real history, like, you know, the Persians came in Alexander with 200,000. I'm like, make these numbers big. And so I want to see like big, 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 large scale battles. And I love it when an author like, um, what's his name? Our Scott Backer um, wrote the Prince of Nothing series. Yeah, yeah. He's just got like, those books are not for everyone at yeah. all. I tried but the whole, first one and it was just like, whew, man. It's, it's a lot. It's so a dark. lot. Yeah, there was a time, and I mean, I can't say anyone's really surpassed it, but where I thought that maybe paragraph for paragraph, he was a be the best prose writer alive, like even better than Gaga, every okay. Yeah. But to be fair, there's lots of scenes, especially in like, as you go on in his books, you're like, where, what is, where is, is this scene taking place? Right, I have yeah. no clue for chapters upon chapters upon chapters, but he's got amazing battles. So I would love to see more epic, epic battles like that you know, with cavalry charges and people from different nations and like this many numbers led by this person, you know, I, I'm, I'm a sucker for that kind of thing. Yeah. Pro prose is such a strange, you know, it's like you go on fantasy, the fantasy subreddit and stuff, or you go on like TikTok or Instagram or whatever. And people, people really want to talk about prose a lot of the time. And, um, I feel like that word has kind of gotten like a little bit lost in like translation and like, what, what does that, what does that word mean to you? Like prose? Um, I mean, it just like when I read a book, I like to, and I like to think that I can tell if the author put a lot of care 
into a paragraph or a sentence. Sometimes it just, you know, especially when it's like there, you get a lot of repetitive words, which also maybe could be the editor's fault. I just, I'm just like, oh, you just weren't, you were just flying and that's good for you. But I want someone that meticulously chooses every word mm, personally. Yeah. Again, I mean, obviously people love, love authors that pump out books really quick and that's great. But I just, I like, I like, you know, a sentence to sound right, the syllables of it, everything. Like I'm, I'm just a sucker for a good paragraph. And at the same time, like I can say that I love this and that there's tons of people that think that my book is pretty simplistically written. I once saw a hilarious comparison where someone's like, if Guy Gabriel K is a steak dinner, then, then Nick Illesimes is Chipotle. And I laughed so hard at that. I actually sent it to Guy and he was like, oh, don't take it too hard. And I'm like, I don't, buddy. We're in the same sentence. Um, but, you know, I, I do. And whether it's evident or not, I, by God, I care about every single word and every single paragraph. And so I do love when, when you can tell that that's been structured. And I think, I guess that's what prose means to me. Not just like get the story out, which is great in some cases, but I like get into it. Yeah, I feel like uh, I'm kind of the same way you know, for me, it's, it's definitely like a, like how effectively is what this person is trying to say resonating with me because of these words? Like, mm -hmm. like how much, I mean, like, um, like I feel like Robin Hobb is like, have you read any Robin Hobb before? Yeah. Yeah. Just that so, first book. Yeah. So like, I feel like Robin Hobb does a very good job at getting you to understand like the feeling of what she's trying to say, even though, I mean, like she definitely, she breaks quite a few rules of oh, yeah. prose like you know she'll use yeah. like the same word in a paragraph like four or five times sometimes she'll she's a lot of passive voice like there's a lot of adjectives all, all over or adverbs i should say all yeah. over the place and um but like it's a very good example of like or even you know like i mean she's kind of a shithead but like jk rowling i mean like so many adverbs and like so many clunky sentences and like just mm -hmm. weird like what the hell is that but i mean like I know what but that it works I, as a I, book. Yeah. yeah, I'm there, you know. Um, so yeah, like prose. I just uh, I like picking people's brains about that because like I've, I know that prose does have like a a, a a definition, you know, dictionary definition. But um, yeah, like it just kind of like, means different things to different people, you know. And yeah, you're right. Like it can be like there's Guy Gabriel K prose, and then there's Joe Abercrombie prose. Yeah, and it's very it's different. very different, you know. And yeah, uh, and it's not to say I don't like books that aren't ever profound kind of thing but i definitely do appreciate when a book like really makes me think or just finish this paragraph and go oh my god that was well written yeah like playing around with language i think is really impressive so i think that um both uh guy gabriel k and abercrombie do that in their own very yeah. unique ways i mean like um abercrombie i really love how he like cuts sentences off um like in his in his sentence structure like you know so he'll he'll talk about like uh like glockta and he's saying like glockta went down the steps and like this and then in the next sentence he doesn't say he doesn't use a pronoun and say like he felt like this he just cuts out he and uses felt like this yeah and it's just yeah. like man you are really just like that's so awesome you're just pushing that sentence out like and it's exactly yeah. it like it matches the tone of like how this person is feeling like yeah. by your word choice and like not even just the word you're choosing but the words you're choosing not to use too yeah he's great at, and that's a great example because he does that all the time and i remember thinking oh i should try that and i try it myself and it feels awkward you know the fuck but, why is that a thing <laughs> i don't know but he, yeah he nails it he just knows exactly where to do it um but yeah. yeah i mean like you know i love talking about authors i love talking about books and um man having you on here was so awesome not just because you're easy to talk to we have great conversations about fantasy but you wrote two awesome awesome books i mean like well, thank you, know, you part of the, the way i've been able to make some money lately is going on the internet and telling other people what to read and um, you know sometimes i have like and sometimes i'm like ah i really like this but you know i don't know if it's like everybody's cup of tea but i feel like with kings of the wild and with bloody rose it's, it's the kind of thing that i can say go read this like go like if you like fantasy if you like laughing if you like action if you like good character development go fucking read these books like there's just <laughs> they're an ace in the hole you know it's like and and i think that you know seeing the progression like we talked about earlier in the episode of like this world being built that you're working on you know i'm so excited to see like what you've got no pressure or anything but i'm so excited no no I, and, I, and i can't wait to write it like i we talked earlier about whether you've got outlines and obviously as the third and final book of a trilogy i do know what happens in the end and how it turns out and i cannot 
wait like to tell it. So I'm, I'm excited for everyone to read it. I just hope I do it justice. Before I let you go, I wanted to ask, is there any, are there any other projects or anything like that that you're excited about that you can talk about? Yeah, well, I recently wrote my first ever comic book. Um, I, I co-wrote it with a guy named Michael Morecci for Vault Comics. Uh, he wrote a book called, or a comic called Barbaric. Uh, right before it came out, he actually wrote to me and he's like, hey, I wonder if I could send you an early copy of this. It's kind of inspired by Kings of the Wild and Joe Abercrombie as well. Um, and it's about this barbarian named Owen, who is cursed to help people if they ask for help, like no matter what. Uh, and then with him is he's got a bloodthirsty yeah. axe that can talk and like gets drunk on blood. Um, and so the pair of them get into some pretty wild hijinks. And I love the comic. It, you know, it's the same spirit as Kings of the Wild. So uh, Vault reached out to me a while ago and asked if I'd ever want to write like a one-off. And I've always wanted to write comics. I was like, this is the perfect chance to write it with someone. So we wrote this massive 44-page uh, book called The Wrong Kind of Righteous. Um, when he was like, have you got any ideas for it? And I said, okay, well, I'm, when I'm thinking about this, this is my first idea. Just shoot it down if you want. And he's like, awesome. We're going with it. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it was actually supposed to come out this month and then a couple of delays happened. So it comes out in November. So I'm not sure when this interview will air, but it's called The Wrong Kind of Righteous. Uh, the comic's called Barbaric from Vault uh, and it'll be out in November. Wrong Kind of Righteous. I'll make sure to put it in the description here. Awesome. Uh, along with everything else. And yeah, again, thank you so much for coming on here, Nicholas. This oh, was, my uh, pleasure, man. Thanks yeah, for reading my books. I really appreciate it. Oh, of course. Yeah, I read Kings of the Wild like before I even started doing all this internet stuff. And uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's it's pretty awesome to meet you and, and get to get the chance to talk to you about all this. Well, I hope that we're uh, I hope that we're orbit mates pretty soon. That'd be pretty rad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Uh, we'll have more interviews up uh, pretty soon. Actually, got some cool stuff scheduled. Until then, go check out Kings of the Wild. Read Bloody Rose the second you're finished with Kings of the Wild, and look out for Outlaw Empire and The Wrong Kind of Righteous, which should be coming out soon. Nicholas, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. And everybody, hope you have an awesome rest of your day, and of course, happy reading.